0: The EY Ireland CEO Outlook report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs.
1: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Ciarán Hancock, a podcast for the Irish Times. Last week's stock markets worldwide wobbled as investors fretted about a global economic recession and aggressive monetary tightening by central banks. In addition, cryptocurrencies have slumped in value this year, leaving many people nursing major losses. So is this just a blip or is there something more fundamental going on? Are we heading towards a global recession? What level of interest rates are likely to be in place in a year's time? And what will all of this uncertainty mean for the Irish economy? Joining me to answer these and other questions were Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, Aidan Donnelly, Head of Equities at Irish Stockbroker Davy, and Martin Wall, the Washington DC correspondent for the Irish Times here we go. Aidan Donnelly, thank you for joining us now. The markets in the US had a bit of a rough time, say the least, last week, entering bear territory, which means they're 20% uh, off a recent peak. And there were, I think, two days last week when the S&P 500 was down by more than 3% on the day. A bit of a respite on Monday because the markets were closed due to a holiday. But maybe just give us the backdrop to what's going on with the markets and, and why they're seeing such sharp declines.
2: I think it's when people are talking about the, the bear market, a, a lot of people look at it and say, well, it's only started really in the last couple of months. But the reality is this has been going on probably since, you know, October, November uh, last year. And what initially I think started off as a, you know, a fairly rational sell off in certain sectors of the market has got, become probably more indiscriminate as we came into this year. And it's probably gone to the point where we're, it's almost irrational now at this stage. And I think last week, really what we're seeing is a lot of volatility but not a lot of volume in terms of uh, shares being traded in the market and i think what what you're classically seeing is what i would i, I would define as a, a kind of a buyer's strike so if you, if you think about the three main blocks of investors you've got large kind of institutional long-only investors so your pension funds and your mutual funds and all of that then you've got your hedge funds and your momentum guys. And then you've got your retail um, investors either investing directly or via funds and ETFs and things like that. And if you go back over the last couple of months, the first two blocks, the long only uh, institutional, they're probably sitting on about at least 6% cash in their portfolio. So they're not selling anymore. They've kind of reached their, their, their maximum kind of cash level within the portfolio. So it's not them that's selling. The, the hedge funds have been max, what we call max short. So they're allowed short the market. They're at their largest or ex- most extended short position that they can be. And they've been that way for probably three or four months at this stage. So they're not selling anymore. So I think what's actually happening is... It's just the dribs and drabs of retail investors probably capitulating, seeing what's going on in their cryptocurrency accounts, seeing what's going on in their own account and, and really just, you know, gotten burnt and, 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 and just throwing the towel in. And those, that volume that's just kind of leaking onto the market is leaking on at a time where there's just no buyers. So there's a kind of a buyer strike. All right. And that's why I think you're seeing the big volatility in, in, in terms of share prices, particularly at the start of the day and at the end of the day because that's when most of the exchange traded funds or the etfs will do their dealing so you can see you know depends on every day if you look at whether the volume is and what's happening to share prices if you get a you know a big open at the or a big move up at the open or a big move down at the open at the same at the end of the day it's really just the exchange traded funds squaring off their books and and that's where you see all the volume then there's no volume at all so that kind of gives me the, the the belief that that's the case now The one thing I I, I would say to you is the position of the long only guys and and the hedge funds isn't a naturally comfortable position they'll be in. They don't want to be extended short if you're the hedge funds, but they've made a lot of money, right? And so the question is, when do they start closing that short? And also then, when do the long-only guys start using some of their cash? We may have a situation for the next tw- few months during the summer where we just go into complete doldrums of the market that there's just nothing happens. You know, you get forays in and out, but really not, no significant catalyst one way or the other as as people look at the, the economic data and and. You know, why was it last week? Well, last week was really on the back of, you know, the, the, the Fed, the US Federal Reserve having to step up and, and, and make it a 75 basis point or three quarters of a percent interest rate increase because the inflation numbers the previous Friday had been worse than expected. And, and, you know, there was a lot of calls that the, the, the Fed were, were what's called behind the curve and they just needed to be seen to get, get ahead of the game. And, and I, and I think that's maybe where, where it all came from.
1: Uh, and Martin Wall, on the issue of inflation, uh, I see that Larry Summers overnight, uh, the former Treasury Secretary in the US, um, he's suggesting that uh, the US might need five years of unemployment above 5% to contain inflation, which is a, a rather stark view.
3: Yeah, um, Kieran, basically, he seems to be suggesting that what is needed in the US economy at the moment is essentially a replay. Of what happened in the late nineteen seventies and the early nineteen eighties, um, at the tail end of Jimmy Carter's administration into the Reagan administration, that they that a deep recession will be needed to actually tackle inflation. Now, bear in mind, Larry Summers has a is a. Is essentially a hawk on the issue of inflation. He has warned uh, for several, uh, nearly a year that inflation was underway, that there was too much money being pumped into the American economy through the various stimulus programs. And that's one way of arguing. Another way of arguing is that, well, that didn't take into account the the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians and the spike in oil prices, etc. But from the politics of that, that would be, um, Joe Biden has said on two occasions, if not three occasions in the last couple of days, that an, that a recession is not inevitable. What Larry Summers seems to be suggesting is that not only is it not inevitable, but it's actually necessary. So um, that would be inflation is really in danger of sinking Joe Biden's Democratic Party this coming November in the midterm elections. Unemployment of 75 to 10% leading into a presidential election would potentially sink the Democrats and the presidency in 2024. So there's really big economic issues uh, brewing in the United States and how it's dealt with is uh, another really important issue. And I think what the Fed are trying to do, uh, as Aidan said, they increased the the rate by uh, three quarters of a point of a 0.75 point last uh, last week, indicated that they may do the same in July or slightly th- slightly less in July. But they're trying to walk a very fine line between um, dealing with inflation, which is at record levels, and plunging the country into a recession, which could cause other significant problems. So that's really where the, um, the the economic fault lines are actually are.
1: Aidan, what's the Davy view on the likelihood of a global recession?
2: I think on a global basis, we don't see one. You know, if you, if you look at the three major blocks in, in terms of regions, you've got the US, you've got Europe, and then you've got Asia, or more importantly, China. We don't see one in the U.S. Uh, over the next 12 months. And and to be honest with you, the main reason behind that is, if you think about the U.S. economy, it's 70% consumer, all right? And if you actually look at the consumer situation right now, in terms of savings, their, their savings level, not their rate now, the actual sa- level of savings is probably twice what it was pre-COVID. They continue to spend. Um, their employment situation is probably better than it's ever been. And, and you know, most people always worry when you when you talk about a recession of the lower income, you know, the lowest income quartile, because that one tends to be hit the hardest. But you could actually argue on a relative basis, they're even better positioned now than their high income compatriots for the simple reason that, you know, if you think about your financial wealth, it's highly unlikely the low-income quartile have any stock market savings. So they haven't seen the 20% pullback in their wealth there. So they're doing okay there. House prices remain very strong. But again, going back to the idea of, of you know their savings, their cash savings in the bank are, are are very high. And also, more importantly, I think if you look at that low-income quartile, typically they kind of get entry-level jobs. But with the, with the tightness of the labour market in the US, they've actually probably seen... Better jobs—they're getting better jobs this time, which pay more and give them more hours of work. So when you you look at their take-home pay, could be anywhere between i tw- I've seen numbers like twelve and fifteen percent uh, take-home pay increases over the last twelve to eighteen months. So the, the consumer in is in a very good uh, situation. And the other thing too is I think people are kind of saying the Fed are behind the curve and blah blah blah. But ultimately. The Fed aren't stupid either. They're not going to chase killing inflation. They're, they're not Volcker that just wanted to put the you know the, the 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 sword through the heart of inflation as he did back in the, in, in the seventies. The Fed aren't stupid. They're not going to plow the economy into a recession just to you know if they get inflation down to something that's with, with a kind of a, a two or a three handle on it, they'd be very very happy, and that can happen over the next six months. So we're reasonably uh, happy that we're not going to see one in in in. Mm-hmm the US. I think in China also it's you know you're not going to see a recession there you, you have the premier trying to get his third um, round of in, in office he's going to do everything he can to make sure um, that he, he gets that uh, true. So, you know, we're also seeing the economy open up uh, post COVID again. So that's that's obviously a positive. Um and and we're starting to see the GDP numbers improve. So, that's not too bad. The last segment is is obviously Europe and I think there it becomes a much more of a binary situation in that if Putin turns the natural gas off into Europe, we have a recession. There's no two ways about it. There is nothing can get us out of that. If he doesn't, I I think Europe can probably muddle on. I do think there are going to be tensions emerging, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, with you know the interest rate on the likes of Italian government and Greek government debt moving a lot higher than than yields in, in, in core Europe. You're going to see those tensions. But I do think it's a really a, is a, a binary thing that, that, that if, if the gas stays on, I think that's, that's a positive. And the other thing I think that's important for Europe is, and um, while we might not like it if we're going on holidays to the U.S., the fact that the dollar-euro rate has come down as much as it ha- is a huge boon to export industry in, Euro- in, in Europe. You know, operating down at 105 is a big positive for them when you have their Asian export markets beginning to open back up again. So, you know, if, if you don't get the rug pulled from underneath in terms of natural gas, I, I think you can kind of stumble on through Europe. So when you put the three of them together, We don't see a recession in the 12 months, certainly on a global basis.
0: With increasing pressures, Ireland's CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving
3: business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment and, importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation. At ey.com slash ie slash CEO.
1: Cliff, it doesn't seem as if Ireland's heading for a recession, and that's probably to do with the unique nature of the economy here and the fact that there's so much multinational activity. We saw during COVID um, how it kept things afloat, and yet um, there are huge pressures building within the economy here, aren't there? We had the national dialogue um, yesterday taking place in Dublin, and the government uh, facing calls uh, across the board to do things on uh, childcare, on uh, benefits payments to help people with uh, rising uh, fuel costs, they were making clear that they're not going to do anything until the budget. Um, but when they do move, it might actually be in October rather than waiting till the new year, which uh, traditionally is the case. So the government is feeling the heat from consumers and from voters in terms of the domestic economy, even though the numbers might suggest that we're not heading for a recession.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, and The government's feeling the heat big time Uh, there's no way they can wait till next year before new measures are introduced so whether something happens before the budget or happens on budget day itself and comes into effect immediately afterwards uh, i think that's that's the way we're heading in terms of uh, we're already hearing hints of very significant welfare package uh, of tax measures to take account of inflation Uh, and i think the kind of wider economic issue there is that consumers are taking a pretty heavy hit uh, to their incomes and and you'd have to think that's going to feed through to uh, consumer spending and to the wider economy over the second half of the year. Now the flip side is is there are a lot of savings still in 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 bank accounts uh, that may support people uh, you know over the summer heading into the second half of the year. but nonetheless with with that happening with global growth slowing, you know maybe not a recession, but certainly gro- global growth slowing, you'd have to say, That, you know, the long period of super strong growth for the Irish economy is probably coming to an end now. We're we're going to be looking at some kind of more normal growth rates and some concerns, I think, moving into next year about the consumer economy. I mean, as Aidan said, the big fear over the winter is, you know, an interruption of gas supplies to Europe. Uh, Whether that leads to an interruption in supplies to here or not isn't clear because there are kind of technical factors there in terms of how we get our gas and how gas might be redirected across Europe. But one way or another, if that happens, gas prices are going to shoot up. That's going to be a big hit to the economy, a big hit to the big manufacturing companies, which are big manufacturing multinationals, which have been one of the bulwarks of the economy, along with the digital sector, of course. So that is the fear, I think, and it has been referred to a couple of times by the Taoiseach and senior ministers in in recent weeks and again the national dialogue yesterday we just don't know how it's going to work out so i think slowdown in growth for sure and a risk then from of something worse if if the if the gas situation does go the wrong way we just don't know we just don't know on that score Kieran, and i think another
2: thing that's interesting and in the irish context is um you know we, we mentioned that we, you know bond yields government bond yields government borrowing has costs have gone up um oh, since the start of the year. And and you know, just to put that in context for, for, for the Irish government, you know, they've gone they've seen, you know, at the start of the year they they, they could raise 10 year bonds at, at pretty much a zero bond yield. That's now two point four. So you know you're you're you you you, you can not just be going out and willy nilly borrowing, borrowing, borrowing because you're you know you've seen a substantial increase in in in, 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 in your borrowing costs. Now, I think the NTMA have done a very good job over the last few years doing what's called terming out of the debt and as in you know getting very you know, when the rates were really low, they went out and they, they took money off anybody who who would give it to them at such a low rate. And so the stock of debt out there is at a very low rate. But like if you kind of go into three or four years where you're borrowing, you know, 10 billion or 15 billion or something like that, and it's suddenly now costing you two and a half or or, or two, two and a half. You know, it's just adding to your interest expense every year that, that you're going. That Again, it, it, it's, it, it's that balance, I think, is going to be very difficult. While the government might like to do something, there isn't an endless pot of money there for the, for them to be able to do it. I was just going to say,
0: here I think the other issue on that score is that they don't want to get out of line with what's happening elsewhere in Europe as well. They very much want to... Um, be seen to stay in line with what's happening um, in other European countries because that's kind of seen as as vital in terms of the view of investors on what's happening here.
1: Aiden, what about crypto assets? They've absolutely uh, collapsed in value, and um, this year, uh, losing what about two thirds of their value uh, or, or thereabouts, depending on what um, time frame you look at. What's going on there? And um. Is there is there is there any value in crypto going forward? I mean, it's hard for people to figure out what crypto is about. Uh, never mind if there's any value in it.
2: Well, I tell you, you made a very interesting comment there, Kieran. Right, there, there was a um, a very famous investor out there called Peter Lynch, and he says, you know, don't invest in something you don't understand. Right, and I've always gone along the lines of. I don't know quite what the cryptocurrencies are. I actually have a reasonably good idea of what blockchain is and the technology behind it. And I actually think that has huge benefits for the world going forward. But I think people too readily confuse blockchain and crypto at the same thing. And ultimately, it was a, it, it, and it remains a hugely speculative instrument with no real value. And, you know, on the basis that, well, I've created this and, and, and you know, there's only a certain amount of them out there. But, you know. It's never going to be a, you know, people always say it's going to be, you know, a transaction mechanism or things like that. There's no way a company would ever start switching over to to crypto. Can you imagine trying to invoice and get paid in crypto? And, you know, one week you might look as if you've got a very healthy profit margin in there. Then the thing goes from from 30,000 to 20,000 and suddenly you've wiped out your whole profit margin on a transaction. So it's not nearly stable enough to, to do that. And while people... You know, and say, "Oh well, you know, it's not Bitcoin, you know, but it's all of these others." I I just don't see it as as a as a um as as a long term stable currency that, that that you know as a kind of a marquee currency that people are going to to move to. And I think what's interesting in that realm is if you look at all of the the sell off that we've seen and, and, and the risk off attitude of investors in both the bond market and in the equity market this year, what's the one? thing that people have flocked to, the dollar, right? And if you look, there is a huge long dollar position out there against every single currency. So against sterling, against euro, against Swiss-y, uh, Swiss franc, against yen. We've seen strong dollar move. Why? Because at the end of the day, that is the reserve currency. And, and you know, while I think pe- pe- people have jumped on it and uh, over the last couple of years, and I'm sure lots of people have made money and thought they were great, but unfortunately, I think you look back now, it's just going to be another one of those things that has has, has absolutely decimated the, the, the savings of an awful lot of, of retail investors. So are you sending the death knell for cryptocurrency? To be honest with you, I tell you, I don't have a clue whether it's going to go up or go down uh, because I can't explain why it went up. I can't explain why it goes down. So but but what I will tell you is, you know, there, there, there's a very funny saying out there. What's the definition of a, of, of a stock that has fallen 90 percent? It's something that fell 80 and then halved again. So I don't think any, any just naturally looking at what if something has fallen from its eyes naturally tells you what's going to happen to it. So uh, buyer beware is what I would say. All right. Well, fair
1: enough. That's an honest uh, assessment. Um, Cliff, one thing we can say with certainly in, in terms of Ireland is that uh, interest rates are going to go up. It's just a matter of the quantum and, and the time frame involved. The ECB has already signaled that it's going to put its rates up in July and uh, further increases will uh, follow What's your expectation? Let's say in a year's time, what would your expectation around interest rates be?
0: Yeah, it's a very hard one to call now, Kieran, because clearly there's been a big battle going on the ECB board uh, about what's going to happen. Uh, And I think that's damaged the communications from the ECB uh, and made them, you know, damage the market confidence in what they're doing a bit. And as Aidan referred to there, There are now kind of rumblings in the Italian bond market and some of the peripheral bond other peripheral bond markets, uh, which could be problematic for the ECB. You know, there's no doubt we're going to see an increase in uh, in July and uh, and another one in September, and I would expect at least one more by the end of the year. Uh, And you know, the indications are that you know maybe we'll see a quarter point uh, in July, could even be a half point. If we see a quarter point in July, it might be a half point. In September, uh, and you know another increase before the end of the year, um, so it, it starts to mount up pretty quickly. I think from the point of view of of mortgage holders uh, and, and those on tracker mortgages, a lot of people are protected, of course, because they're on fixed rates for the moment. And I think one of the really hard questions to answer is where is this rate cycle going to go next year, uh, and, and 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 into twenty twenty four. Uh, you know what's the peak of it going to be what we've seen over the last kind of 10 or 15 years is the peak of each successive cycle has been has been lower um, is that going to be the case this year with inflation or this time with inflation being so high is inflation going to come off a peak again are the central banks effectively going to be stymied by a slowdown in growth um, heading into next year it's a really hard one to forecast so i think three increases this year possibly including one chunky one another increase early next year beyond that very hard to call i think the issue it, 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 that that's and
2: I, and i have some a, a large degree of sympathy in a certain way for the ecb is the the, the thing they're trying to fight right, i.e. inflation actually doesn't get sorted out with the tools that they have in their kit. So it's it's like, a, it's like a workman going to a job and all he has in his toolkit is screwdrivers, but he actually needs a spanner. Because if you think of the things that are driving inflation, it's the, it's the energy price and, and its supply chain issues. Now, putting up interest rates doesn't solve either of those situations, right? All it does is, you know, reduces economic demand and things like that, which is all right if you're if, you, if, if you're looking at an economy like China that's grown at 6% or 5% or some of like that. When you're down in Europe and you're growing at kind of, you know, two ish, the last thing you really want to do is be putting the brakes onto, on, on, onto your economic growth. So it is a big problem for them. But the market has been pushing them that they've got to do something on inflation. They've got to do something on inflation. And the only thing they can really do is quantitative tightening. Uh, i.e., reverse quantitative easing and then increase interest rates, but you know neither of them really solve the problem that are, are the cause that, that that are the yeah the cause of the the higher inflation. So it, it it's a bit of a conundrum for them, you know.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, part, part of the difficulty is that really what they're trying to do is affect people's expectations now. So they're they're trying to persuade people that this higher inflation rate isn't going to stick. Uh, but as Aidan said, they really haven't got the tools to ensure that's going to happen. So it's kind of, uh, look, let's pretend we're going to clamp down on inflation. Let's put interest rates up. But no one re- is really quite sure whether they have the right tools to do it or not, or how this is going to work out. Martin, you're
1: on the ground in the US and Washington, DC. What's the consumer sentiment like over there? Is this is this really dominating uh, headlines on the nightly news? And and what about the politics of this? Uh, obviously, you mentioned the the midterm elections, which are coming later this year, and Joe Biden uh, and the Democrats under pressure, um, uh, is this fuel to the fire for Donald Trump? I didn't want to bring Donald Trump into this podcast, but uh, here we go. You said fuel there, I think, by accident more than designed. Fuel is the actual, it dominates
3: everything. Every night on the TV, you have uh, reports from people doing pieces of camera in four-courts of garages talking about the the price of a gallon of fuel, or gas as they call it here, uh, taking upwards. Now, last week, the price of a gallon of fuel increased by $0.17 in a week, and it was going up $0.03, $0.05, whatever. It was taking up every day. And now, interestingly, in the last day or so, the price has actually begun to soften very slightly. It hit the average price of a gallon of fuel hit $5 uh, for the first time across the country. Now, there's... wide regional variations in that but the average price is now has now fallen to about 497, 498 and the indications are the hopes are that it may stay that way uh, for the next few weeks but the problem they have uh, that the, the the president has is that his republican opponents maintain that um, you're the cause, you're the blame for all this, you're the blame for inflation, you're the cause of inflation because of the the, the stimulus programs and um, pour too much money onto the... And the other piece that's been criticized is Biden's um, climate change uh, agenda, which basically sought to uh, curb uh, fossil fuels. And it, he didn't, as president, he um, he abandoned proposals for uh, new pipelines, etc. Now, in reality, even if those pipelines had been authorized, the fuel coming through those pipelines wouldn't actually do anything for, for the cost of a gallon of fuel at the moment. In reality, the real problem in America is refinery um, capacity, and r- about five separate refineries around the country uh, went out of business or were taken offline uh, during COVID. And the problem is, is that the, the oil companies do not wish, do not want to reinvest in refinery capacity because they believe that the trend in the longer term is towards renewables, and therefore it will be wasted. There hasn't been a new oil refinery built. In the United States since the 1970s and there probably will never be another one built again. The President is trying to beat the oil companies over the head every day in relation to excessive profits and urging them to actually um, to put more refinery capacity on, on, on board. They're resisting and there are new talks this week between the oil companies and the White House, not with the President but with the White House. So all of this is leading towards uh, the, the Democrats are in a Quite a hole leading into the elections. There are extraordinary figures in polls. Figures of seventy percent, eighty percent of people believe the economy is going the wrong way, um, and it is really down to fuel prices and to a lesser extent food prices. But the cost of gas is a bellwether in for the United States economy, and given the amount of driving that people do, and particularly as we head into what's called the driving season when people take holidays and whatever else, leading up to the 4th of July. We've had a bank holiday weekend here last weekend. A lot of people would have been on the road. So there'll be another bank holiday weekend in a couple of weeks' time for the 4th of July. And this is a really, really big issue in people's mind. So it's a big conundrum for the president. How do you get the price of fuel down? He has put a, a million barrels of oil a day out of what are called the strategic reserves of the United States into the market to try to uh, put some form of uh, Pressure on the, the the price, but the reality is, it seems to be coming down to the issue of uh, refinery capacity. Uh, the president has had a, quite a political about turn in relation to his relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, he, as a candidate, uh, described Saudis as a pariah state after the murder of the Washington Post columnist uh, Jamal uh, However, now he is now going to meet the, the Saudi de facto leader, uh, the Crown Prince. In um, Saudi, in a month's time, so there has been quite a big issue. There's needs must the the issue of high principles of opposition are now meeting real politics on the ground. Uh, they need the Saudis to pump more oil to try get more oil into the market? But even if that happens, it will come it will come up against the issue of refinery capacity. So big problems on the economy leading to big
2: problems politically for the president and the Democrats as they head into November. It's funny, Martin, you mentioned that that five dollar is a psychological thing. I was I was in the States two weeks ago meeting a, a lot of companies. And, and one of the companies I met is a, it's a company called Dutch Brothers, and they do drive through coffee shops all the way down the West Coast and, and across the southern states and up part of the way up the East Coast. And they were saying that um, it, w- it was quite amazing. As soon as the uh, price of, of gasoline hit five dollars in California, they literally saw within a day, a drop off in, 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 in sales of coffee. Yeah, people, you know, and, and, you know, it's obviously a drive-through and suddenly, you know, you, you have that. Now, they said within about two weeks, people just got fed up making their coffee at home and <laughs> just said, the hell with that, I'm going back. Um, but they said it was. It's, a, it's quite incredible that $5 gasoline is this psychological number that just, once people see it, they just, oh, oh, there's a big, big sticker shock on it.
3: But there are forecasts by some economists that the average price could reach $6 by the end of the summer, which would again be another psychological barrier. But again, as I say, there are regional um, issues in the West Coast in California, particularly fuel prices are higher than they are down south in uh, at the Gulf in Texas, Louisiana, etc. Ironically, in Washington, D.C., it's higher than uh, where I am as just across the, the state border in northern Virginia, it's actually higher in Washington than it is in Northern Virginia. So there are regional issues. The other issue that is going to happen is that, the, or certainly simply looking at happening, is, is that the president is looking at uh, reducing taxes on gasoline. That um, there is a federal, what's called a gas tax, and they're lo- that, that adds about 18, 18 cents to a gallon of fuel. And they're looking, he said he will have a decision by the end of the week as to whether they will actually do, do that. Obviously, that would be popular, but it doesn't deal, deal with the underlying fundamental issue and it would have to be paid for somewhere else down the road and the other issue which has been bad it's, it's come literally literally at a left field it's come from the left moving more into the mainstream thought is the issue of a windfall tax on the on the um on the fuel companies particularly coming in that the administration is arguing is that the, what the fuel companies are doing is that they are using excess profits for buying back stock etc and that they are making excessive levels of um of money out of uh, these high prices. So again, the issue of a windfall tax would be politically popular in certain quarters. But just like in the UK, it would cause political contortions for some of the more conservative uh, people in, in Congress to contemplate the idea of a windfall tax. But It's been talked about. And interesting, a new buzzword that we're hearing here, we're we're talking about going back to, people talking about going back to 1970s style stagflation, etc. There's a a new word that we're hearing here called shrinkflation. And basically where companies are, rather than raising prices anymore because they're reaching kind of elasticity levels, is that um, uh, shrinking or reducing the amount of volume in their product so
2: um, you, you only get seven squares in a dairy milk instead of eight, Martin. That's the way it is.
3: <laughs> if we go back to the old <laughs> argument, how many crisps in a crisp bag, you know. So um, but it's that's but that is actually, again, being talked about here now as ways of um, dealing with um, with the extra costs and to avoid increasing prices.
1: Well, I'm certain my dishwasher tablets have uh, shrunk in size. Uh, that's that's for sure. Um, still pretty effective, though, it must be said. Cliff, um, just a couple of other things facing um, the Irish economy, if you like. Britain, uh, I mean, the Bank of England doesn't seem to be making any secret that, uh, of the fact that Britain is heading for uh, recession, um, 10% inflation, you know, 40-year high, and all of that uh, good stuff. We have the uh, row now over the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol, I mean, time was when Britain was by far our biggest trading partner. That That's not the case anymore. But if Britain catches uh, a cold, uh, essentially, we're going to be infected, aren't we?
0: Yeah, I mean, to an extent, we are all on right, uh, It was interesting, actually, at the National Economic Dialogue, listening to uh, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue doing the usual pre-budget thing of trying to find everything to warn about. And they threw in Brexit, they threw in COVID. Um, obviously, the war in Ukraine, oil prices, fuel prices, the whole uh, the whole shooting match. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, I mean uh, there are a group of, I suppose, smaller, more traditional companies that remain reliant on the uh, on the British market. Uh, they faced a lot of ups and downs in the last few years, um, and uh, you know it, the British the British economy is in is in kind of longer term trouble. Um, recession or very slow growth does look likely. Productivity growth is very low. Um, you know it's in a bad place, and the the price of Brexit is now being paid, and that is going to cost Ireland. And you're right. The, the the whole border thing is is still there, bubbling away in the background. Uh, I mean, how on earth is it going to work out? Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, but there's no doubt that what Boris Johnson has now threatened does put the whole thing back on you know into play again in terms of how this is going to work out. Where goods are going to be checked? Uh, is this are they going to have implications for for north south trade? You know, I think the Republic's economy can can probably weather a, a fair bit of that, albeit with with some damage to domestic companies, you'd be more worried about the economy in Northern Ireland where investors must just be looking at having perhaps seen an opportunity uh, with the protocol and the kind of two-way trade that was opened up. They're now saying, I'm not going to put my money there. Uh, I'm going to sit and see how things are going to work out. You'd have to think there's an an opportunity there being missed big time. And Cliff, the extra demands that are going to be placed on the public
1: purse and the budget, can we afford it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, the thousand, the, the, the whatever billion dollar or euro question here on all right. Uh, I think, as Aidan said earlier, look, we we have been in a period when we've been able to spend very very freely because we've been able to borrow at zero cost. And I think the whole COVID experience kind of led people to expect that the government is going to is able to step in and you know save people from any you know potential circumstance, and save companies from any potential circumstance as well. And ministers have been coming out kind of warning that the world has changed now, while at the same time feeling politically obliged to kind of drop hints of how they're going to help everyone over the next six or eight months. I mean, to answer your question straight, I mean, I, I, th- I, think, I think no is the answer in terms of looking out over the next few years. Uh, we have got some leeway in the budget, but we also are going to have to look at ways to raise revenue over the next few years. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Ageing population... Climate change, all the things we know about. Um, there, there, there's going to be a new agenda in Irish politics, and a very interesting time, I think, leading up to the to the next election. Kieran, just one piece
3: there in relation to revenue, as Cliff says. The the old the the, the, the question of corporation tax is going to raise itself again potentially this weekend. Um, the OECD deal um, is it, obviously been on ice in America. Nothing has happened, and. The President has said yesterday that there will be he will want to talk about it at the g seven this weekend, so whether he's intending to try uh see will Congress move in the next couple of days in relation to what what he's now see, seen to do is to break up all of the 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 big very big plan spending bill that he had the bill back better and break it down into key components, and one of those will be the the tax element of it as to whether we can get that through as a standalone measure. Um, but he's certainly raised it twice now in the last week that uh, he wanted to raise this issue at the G7. So the issue of the uh, the OECD deal and corporation tax will be back in the mix again, for good or for bad, one way or the other, I would suspect, in the next, uh, the next couple of weeks.
1: Cliff, I was actually going to ask you about the corporation tax. You've covered it an awful lot over um, the last year or so. Uh, is this deal ever going to see the light of day? Because it's not just in the US where it's facing difficulties, but in Europe as well.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say there, uh, after Martin uh, spoke, I think it, it's beginning to take on kind of uh, the look of the climate change agenda. Everyone's in favour of it, but no one is doing anything, um, or no one is doing anything like enough. I think there are huge problems now. Um, it's stymied in Europe because it's stymied in the US. It looked like Europe was going to get the minimum corporate tax thing through, the polls that seem to come on side, but now the Hungarians have jumped in. And obviously there's all kinds of politics going on under the surface there. Very hard to read how that might fall out. It, they may not move now until the U.S. moves. And whether the U.S. can move politically or not is very much open to question. So I think it's all in a mixer again. Uh, and, and there certainly is a risk it could all fall apart.
2: And I think the other thing too is, I suppose, when you're looking at you know, globally talk of recession, talk of recession. Is that really the time that you want to be hammering corporates with a, high, a higher tax rate? You know, I, I'm not necessarily sure that's going to be the case. I, mean, I think the other interesting one, Cliff was talking about the, the, the UK. I, I, I think the UK economy is in for a very, very long, cold winter, to be quite honest, which are many years, because I think when you look at the, the, the government finances, They've. Sp- I think they've emptied the war chest trying to defend the economy against COVID, and and now they fast forward to the situation where, you know, they need to raise start raising tax revenues. They're not going to be able to do it from the perspective of of income tax or like that. So then they're saying, oh, let well, it's corporate tax rates have to go up, or you know, it's windfall taxes uh, being being hit everywhere, and. You know, if, if you just take a step back and, and, and look at it from from, a um, you know, an international corporates perspective and they're looking at the UK and they're saying, well, why exactly are we in the UK? Right. It used to be the case. It was an English speaking doorway into Europe and it was a reasonable size economy of its own right now. It's not a doorway into Europe anymore. In fact, they're, they're going out of their way to create more fights with any, like, like there's the old idea of when you're in a hole, you stop digging. Well, it doesn't seem to be the case for the British government. They just want to keep on digging the hole that, 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 that they're in. So when you look at that and you're looking at the international guys going, Why exactly am I in? And we're already starting to see an awful lot of um, international companies looking, particularly at their manufacturing in the UK, and go, "Well, well, maybe I'll keep manufacturing there, enough manufacturing there to solve the. Or to to to, to for the, for the UK demand, right? Uh, but anything else, I'm just you know, if I used to be using it as a source for for European orders or anything like that, I'm not going to be doing any of that. I'm going to be moving to Poland. I'm going to be moving to somewhere in Europe and setting up facilities. So I I I think the UK government has a real they're in a real bind, and I think the fact that you had a, you know the Bank of England coming out and basically saying. We've got to jack up interest rate massively to fight inflation because it's going to hit ten percent plus. But we know that's going to kill the economy, and there's nothing we can do about it. So such is life, right? That's that's fairly historic for any central bank to come out now. You know, you know, even Volcker in his worst, I wouldn't have said what was that matter of fact in 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 his approach. But that's where they are. So. I just, I look at the UK economy and I really think they're in for many, many years of trouble. And, and as I said, they're not helping themselves by, by, you know, starting fights with everybody around the world.
1: Yeah, and they're due to increase their, uh, their own corporation tax rate, aren't they? Aidan, we started off with markets on yourself, uh, and I think we're going to close off there as well. Um, is, there, is there any safe haven out there for an investor at the minute that you would recommend?
2: Well, I tell you, the, 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 the funny thing about it is, and, and I'm getting this question an awful lot, the natural thing, the, 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 down, the bad news is that the volatility we've seen in markets over the last while is going to be continue. It may not be as volatile, but volatility is definitely going to be there. You're in an interest rate increasing cycle, so there's always volatility in, in that in markets. Now, the natural inclination for an awful lot of people is to kind of to, to flock to the safe havens of, you know, consumer staples or food companies or utilities and all of this type of thing. I think that could be the biggest mistake people make, because when you actually look at the valuations of these companies, they are priced for perfection and any sniff of bad news. And you could easily see 20, 30 percent of these three names are those types of names what i'm saying to clients ultimately is that that you know you don't protect yourself against uh, necessarily against uh, volatility but what you do is you you structure your portfolio so that it is able to withstand the volatility and and how do you do that i think the most important thing is particularly when it comes to investing in equities is you, you you do what i call know your number as in what is the right allocation to equities for you and there's four of us on this uh, this call that that's four different numbers everybody has their own number you do a financial plan you work out what your number is and whatever that is that is what your equity allocation is right and you're at it you're not above it or you're not below it the problem and and most of the largest part of wealth is destruct wealth destruction comes from people who are overexposed to equity markets at the wrong time and are then forced sellers at the low right and 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 because the problem with that is, you never make that money back. You've basically thrown the towel in right at the wrong at, at the wrong time, and when markets rebound, and and you know. Any investment should be over the long term. Any, any when markets rebound into the long term, you miss out on that. So knowing what the right exposure is and, and being at that on is key. I think the other thing is to focus on you know good quality companies that you know are going to be around for a long time, have a decent business model, are profitable, are able to grow. You know, albeit not massively in in, in, in slow economic environments, but also when things are good, they're able to grow strongly. And then the last bit is to make sure that you are diversified, you know, by, by the region that you invest in, the sector you invest in, and more importantly, by the the size of positions. You shouldn't have any large, big positions in your portfolio because the market is just not going to, to pay you a, a risk, a proper risk reward for taking that, that risk. I think, you know, we, we saw two or three weeks ago when, you know, people looked at at. at the profit won out of Walmart and the stock was down 20 in, percent in, in, in within a couple of days, you know. Nobody would have thought that would ever likely happen. And that just goes to show you it can happen to even the best of companies or the companies that you think are best. So having large positions in, in, in this type of a market, I, 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 I think is foolhardy. You know, you've got to have diversification by the number of portfolio in your portfolio, by the, the region you invest in and, and by the sectors. And, but most importantly, make sure that you're not overexposed to, to equity markets and that you can stay the, the, the course over whatever happens in terms of the volatility. Okay, that's
1: it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Aidan Donnelly and Martin Wall. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, Ui for its continued support. To stay in touch with the latest business news, you can sign up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.